And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Uh, we're staying in the Showa era today as we are shifting from the big screen to the small screen. We're going to be taking a look at episodes 17 and 18 of Ultraman from 1966. We will also be continuing our coverage of Marvel Comics Godzilla which if, with issue number 16 of that series, which finishes up the two-part uh, Wild West storyline with Godzilla. Um, but before we get into that, we've got some news and notes, so let's uh, look into those. Uh, we reported previously on this show that there was an Ultraman anime being developed based on the manga. Well, the teaser for that anime has dropped. It is coming sometime in 2019. We don't have any other information beyond that. It looks to be a mix of cell animation and CGI, which frankly is not really surprising. A lot of uh, anime are kind of going in that direction. So uh, not really surprising to see that does look very cool. The designs uh, that we have seen, and admittedly the teaser doesn't have much. We just kind of see uh, the Ultraman suit looks very much like the manga. Um, so again, more info on this story as it develops. Uh, this I saw this at multiple different sources. So if you want to see that uh, teaser, I'm sure you could find it. Also recently announced, the new season of Power Rangers is going to be called Power Rangers Beast Morphers. But get this. You'd think with name like Beast Morphers, maybe it was going to be Zuoga, right? Well, you would be wrong. They are going back to 2012 and adapting Go Busters, which was skipped the first time around. So this is this is really big news. This is the first time they've ever gone backwards on a Power Rangers adaptation to get an older Super Sentai instead of getting... Uh, one of the new ones. Now, this is kind of a, like I said, a big change of pace. Not the only change of pace happening uh, at Saban, as they have also announced that their longtime toy licensor, Bandai of America, will no longer be handling the toy line, instead shifting over to Hasbro, of all people. So, very interested to see what this means as far as the traditional Power Rangers toy output, which normally was uh, you know, figures and monsters, and then also larger vehicles, and then of course Zord. So I'm assuming that Hasbro is going to probably stick pretty close to that, uh, but we have not uh, had any official reveals of any of this information. Furthermore, you have to ask the question, what does this mean for other shows like Tokuga, which was skipped? And I really liked Tokuga uh, because I like trains, and but, but never got an adaptation. Will they revisit that one? And what about... Zuoga, as I said, which seems with the animal-themed motif, seemed really easily adaptable over to Power Rangers. And even more broader than that, what about Kyo Ranger, which was the uh, just recently finished Super Sentai that was a space theme that was developed hand-in-hand -hand between Saban 
and uh, and Toei. So with the, the specific intention of making it palatable to be translated into Power Rangers. So I don't know what any of this means, frankly. So we're going to have to uh, just wait and see on this. Um, but still very neat that Go Busters is finally going to be brought over here, especially considering the large amounts of Power Rangers references and kind of homages in Go Busters. So should be interesting to see that. Hopefully... They will keep Let's Morphin as, uh, you know, part of the transformation uh, in, in that series when Beast Morphers drops uh, here in the States. Uh, one final thing here. I have an email from my brother who has some uh, news and notes. And let's uh, let's go to that. And then uh, let's see what Jay has to say here. He says, hey, Luke, in Horror Hound issue number 69, which is the January, February 2018 issue, they showed the new Pacific Rim Uprising toys from the Japanese toy um, uh, company Tamashi Nations. And uh, Tamashi Nations, of course, is the um, side of Bandai, which puts out SH Figure Arts, SH Monster Arts, D Arts, formerly did Ultra Act, uh, you know, the, the, the collector's market aimed side of, of that line. Uh, Jay continues, this line will have the Robot Spirits line. There will be Gypsy Avenger, Braver Phoenix, Obsidian Fury, Saber Athena, Guardian Bravo, and Titan Redeemed. Each will have full articulation and include weapons and optional body parts, hands, arms, etc. Most of the bots have a suggested retail price of $29.99. The Kaiju figures is called Sofi, as like soft vinyl spirits, and they have only announced the first mega figure named Raijin, who has an SRP of $39.99. Now, um, Every, now, I did a little bit of research after Jay sent me this email. Every one of these figures is available for pre-order right now on HLJ, which is my preferred site for ordering Japanese imports. You can also go to AmiAmi or whichever site you prefer. I like HLJ just because they speak native English, and that's helped me out over the years. Um, the, um, the Robot Spirits figures, they range from about $20 to $26.00. Raijin is right now going for about $32, so about right what you would expect. In addition to these, uh, the HG model figures, the high-grade model kits uh, for all of the Jaegers are also available. These are all around $20. And in addition, we've got a new release for Gypsy Danger, the original uh, Gypsy Danger, not Gypsy Avenger, in the, the high-end, the super high-end Soul of Chogokin line which right now is pre-ordering at about $233. So uh, there is lots of Jaeger stuff out there. Uh, those uh, Robot Spirits figures are very cool. They're, they're kind of like the equivalent of an SH Figure Arts for a robot. So if you're inter if you like SH Figure Arts, that level of detail and articulation, please go check those out. Uh, Jay also continues with some DVD and Blu-ray news. Criterion has announced that they have secured the rights to the, quote, classic Godzilla franchise, which... Criterion says is every Godzilla film from 1954 to 1975, so ranging from uh, Gojira straight through Terror of Mechagodzilla. They have not announced if there will be single releases or a box set, and whether it will be both DVDs and Blu-rays together or what. Um, and then Jay says, that's it for now, keep them stomping, sign Jay. So... I had seen a little bit about this, but I never saw anything official from Criterion. Like, they floated out the image that showed all the titles, but never, like, an actual news uh, item, like, detailing it. Um, I, judging from how I normally think of Criterion, I would imagine that they would do individual releases, 
but with something like this, they might, might do a kind of a mega box set. I don't, I'm not really sure. The main ones here, obviously, Gojira, because any release of Gojira is, is always a big deal, and especially if Criterion's going to do their, their normal, um, you know, high-end sort of release. The big ones, I think, for this have really got to be Son of Godzilla and Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, because those have been out of print for so long that finding cheap copies of them is pretty much impossible. And we'll talk about this actually in at the very end of the show in an email. This kind of this comes up again, but um, so those two alone would be worth getting, even if you had to pay a bit more for a premium Criterion release versus, say, the more uh, evergreen, uh, lower price releases from like Section Twenty Three Kraken Films that have done. Uh, they did a trio of Showa films and then Godzilla Nineteen Eighty Five. Um, you know, obviously for high end releases, that's what you hope for from Criterion. Uh, I'd have to take a long, hard look at those because, you know, to get the, because I know that there was a project to do 4K transfers for all of the Godzilla films. It was a, I read about this news story a couple of years ago about a guy doing this and it was kind of the technical side of it is how does something that suit Mation, how does that translate to a 4K, uh, visual representation? So I'm very interested in this and I'm going to keep, uh, you know, keep my eyes and ears peeled and see if we can find more information on this. If nothing else, just to get those two uh, harder to find ones in the collection. But, you know, I say that, but now what I'm discovering is a lot of the Sony Classics Media ones are starting to go out of print, like Ghidorah and Monster Zero and the Rodan War of the Gargantua's two-pack are all out of print. So they're they're starting to go up in price too, which is really odd. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I mentioned the term evergreen before. Um, I remember when um, uh, Universal released the DVD and Blu-rays of King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes, and part of their marketing was is that they believed those titles to be evergreen titles that will sell, you know, that they'll sell a bunch initially because of collectors buying them, but they want, there were titles that it made sense to keep in print because, you know, there's always a certain level of interest in giant monster movies, and Sony had previously described the Godzilla films in that way as being evergreen. So maybe the reason that those are starting to go out of print is because of this Criterion deal, that maybe Criterion was starting to secure the rights and was trying to secure the rights to everything, and so that's why these Sony ones are having to go out of print. So more on this as we find out, but exciting times to be a giant monster fan, that is for sure. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back covering the first of two episodes of Ultraman, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hi, folks. My name is Reginald Francis Winterborn Smythe III, President and CEO of Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated. When my granddaddy, Reginald Francis Winterborn Smythe I, founded Biscuit Basket back in 1937, his mission was to provide hard-working families with good food at a good value. Today, here at Biscuit Basket, we continue to strive to make our biscuits, fixins, and entrees the best value in town for our customers and to bring families together around the dinner table. And we always put the biscuit in the basket. Remember, if you love your family, y'all take them to Biscuit Basket, just off State Road 23, on the frontage road, and tell them Reginald sent you. Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated is not liable for biscuits delivered outside of baskets. Women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, or have been pregnant should not eat a Biscuit Basket. Do not operate heavy machinery for at least four hours after eating a Biscuit Basket. Customers who order the Biscuit Basket down home country fees must meet minimum health qualifications and sign a waiver indemnifying Biscuit Basket Consolidated Brands Incorporated against all damages. The price is slightly higher in Missouri.
All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 17, entitled Passport to Infinity, first aired on TBS, and that, of course, is the Tokyo Broadcast System, on November 6th, 1966. Our director is Toshira Ijima. Our writer is Keisuke Fujikawa, and special effects are by Koichi Takano. And our synopsis is adapted from the Ultraman Wikia, which you can find at ultra.wikia.com. The professor, Sir Yesterday, studies a blue meteorite he discovers during an expedition when suddenly it begins to move and transports him away. Sir Yesterday later reappears, dazed, but otherwise unharmed. Later, another part of the meteor, this one red, is being examined by Dr. Kamaguchi, Sir Yesterday's colleague. Eventually, with the help of the science patrol, they discover the fragments possess reality-altering capabilities and study further. The meteorite fragments continue to warp reality around them, so in the interest of safety, the science patrol puts both of them under lock and key at their headquarters. However, the two fragments soon merge together and grow into the strange creature Bolton, which resembles a semi-spheroid meteor rock with various protrusions on its form. Once free, Bolton uses its warping powers to alter reality, trapping everyone in another dimension with the exception of Fuji and Hoshino, who happened to be outside the HQ at the time. Fuji calls for backup in the form of Japan's self-defense force to battle the creature, but Bolton uses its reality-warping abilities to dispatch them, shifting tanks into the air and jets onto the ground. While the SDF can't do anything to harm Bolton, they do manage to lead the creature away from the HQ, giving Hayata the opportunity to transform into Ultraman to battle with the creature. However, once in combat, Bolton uses its warping capabilities to confuse and outsmart Ultraman, eventually trapping the hero underground. Ultraman, however, fought back and resurfaces, then uses his high spin attack spinning around at a high speed to damage Bolton's antenna, stunning the creature. With the opportunity, Ultraman fires two specium beams, reducing Bolton to tiny, weak rocks. Ultraman then picks it up and destroys it by crushing him with his bare hands. After Bolton is destroyed, Hoshino is rewarded for his bravery and resourcefulness and made a junior member of the Science Patrol. Well, a bit of an unusual episode here, very science fiction heavy, and definitely uh, the strangest monster that we have seen on Ultraman so far, far and away when in Bolton. So uh, let's get right on into the notes. At the beginning of the episode, we uh, mention is made of the London HQ for the Science Patrol. This continues the international reach of the organization. Unfortunately, no English agents appear this time out. Would have been nice to see that. We had previously gotten a European agent in uh, Bluestone of Barrage. So it would have been nice, but not, not really possible in this, uh, in this episode. But I do like the idea that the Science Patrol is this international organization, and we just happen to focus on the Japanese ones, uh, Japanese agents, I should say. So that, that, that I always liked. And they do continue that later on in the Ultra series, but even if it's just a little bit of a lip service paid here, I think it's a, a well done reference. Um, as Sir Yesterday is examining the meteorite, we get some camera effects to show the uh, the reality warping powers. In this case, the camera flips over 
180 degrees so that everything is upside down. It's done very quickly and it's a little disorienting when you first see it. Uh, I'm reminded of an effect that was used a couple years later in the very, very early episodes of Common Rider. Sometimes to show the, you know, the, 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 I guess the dynamism and the, uh, the fast paced action of the fight. Sometimes you'd see the camera flip over as, um, as Common Rider would kick or throw a shocker agent or whatever. Uh, but it, it's kind of an effective thing here to show that reality's warping around and things aren't quite what they seem. Another effect that's really nice is later in, uh, Dr. Kamaguchi's lab, they, uh, the, his assistant opens a doorway and it's another, like, through the doorway is, it looks like another dimension. It's all weird colors and shapes. And so it's, again, it's something very simple. But when you've got a monster like Bolton that has these broad based reality powers, it's really kind of a, a nice effect rather than, you know, trying to overdo it with something that looks, uh, that might not come off as well on TV, doing something simple, you know, uh, sells it and is, you're able to pull it off well, I think. Um, while, while we're at the lab, after we see the, um, the, the doorway to another dimension, um, I, there's a nice little character bit where ev all the lab assistants and everyone else are running out. Hayata is the one running towards danger, which is very common for the science patrol and a lot of uh, heroes in general, both Eastern and Western here in the 1960s. But just a little subtle thing like that, like Hayata being the one that running straight towards the danger, we expect it. And I, I like that we get it because it's an, it'd be a nice little character bit for Hayata. Now, after all the craziness at Dr. Kamaguchi's lab, Kamaguchi calls uh, Bolton a, quote, creature from a non-identity world. Now, that sounds very suitably technobabble, but I have absolutely, I, I don't know what the heck that means. <laughs> to me, that makes absolutely no sense. I can only offer speculation that maybe he's suggesting that um, it's a world where the laws of physics, as we know and understand them, don't apply. Um, because, you know, we, we have the laws of physics here on Earth. And even if you take that to another planet, certain things are still true, even if to different levels. For instance, if we travel to Mars, the gravity and the air pressure is different on Mars. So even though the exact results are not the same. The general laws of physics, the law of gravity still applies on Mars, even if the rate of acceleration of gravity is different. Very similar to what, you know, we always think of the classic images of man walking on the moon. You know, gravity still works. There is some gravity on the moon, but not to the effect. But maybe what Dr. Kamaguchi is saying here is that wherever this meteorite came from that becomes Bolton, the laws of physics completely don't apply. How that translates to non-identity world, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's a cool term, so uh, I'll, I'll let it slide. You know, sometimes with Technobabble, you can't all be like John Pertwee and just use the same Technobabble over and over. So uh, you got to, you know, just stick it out there. And, you know, if you try to explain it, you're going to ruin it. So just you know, go with your first gut instinct. After the two halves of Bolton recombine in the Science Patrol HQ, it, he grows and he, and he appears to be bursting out of the Science Patrol HQ. It's a very, very, uh, very nice, very simple effect. Again, like a lot of the stuff on Ultraman is, but it's nice because it, it, it the camera pulling back and then you see the full size model of, uh, Science Patrol HQ, which normally we only see for shots of the Jet VTOL taking off or something like that. And you see just Bolton rising up out of it. It's very nice. And Bolton is such a strange monster. Uh, you know, he's, we, we talked about Bolton a little bit when I, we, we talked about the Game Boy Ultraman game. You know, he, he looks like, um, 
you know, basically a, a meteor rock, but he's alive. He rolls around. He can extend different antenna up out of the, uh, for lack of a better term, craters on his body and create different effects that, uh, you know, he doesn't have any hands or feet or a mouth or even a face of any kind. So it's very, very unusual, extremely non-humanoid creature. You know, we've had non-humanoid creatures before. Um, immediately thought of Dodongo, who was kind of like a uh, like a centaur type of creature, but nothing as really bizarre as Bolton. And so the to give this really bizarre creature reality warping powers, I think is a really good fit. Because obviously Bolton can't fight in the traditional way, can't fight tooth and claw. And if you gave him beam attacks or something like that, okay, I can see how that would work. But you've already got this life form that doesn't look like any life form that we've seen so far in the show, nor something that we can relate back to, uh, you know, a, an animal or uh, some type of living creature here on Earth. You know, um, you know, we've got lots of weird-looking, you know, um, microscopic creatures or you know, even things like the, in the plant or fungi worlds, but nothing quite like this. So giving him powers that alter reality and lets him, you know, uh, defend, it, defend itself by shifting, um, you know, things in the sky to the ground or vice versa or collapsing the earth or, you know, paralyzing Ultraman in midair or something like that, I think is a really nice fit. And it serves to help Bolton be one of the more memorable monsters uh, from the series. Uh, as part of that reality warping, uh, he, uh, Bolton warps reality around in the HQ, and that leaves at one point, uh, Ide running up a stairway to nowhere because, as we know, Ide is there for comedy, and he does a great job of it here. So, moving on. Now, the, uh, the SDF attack, the tank sound effects <laughs> used for the tanks will be very familiar to anyone who is a fan of the Godzilla series from this time because the uh, sound effects are the same library that Subarai would use in the movies as in the shows. Now, the models are slightly less detailed than we'd get in a movie, obviously because of the television budget, but they're not bad for a TV budget. Frankly, the tanks look pretty decent, and so do the jets. Um, now, of course, they don't make much impact because Bolton collapses the ground and swallows them up and then makes the jets disappear and then swaps their position, which is actually really... You know, at, at first it seems a little bizarre because you just see all the planes kind of skidding to a stop on the Earth. And then the tanks are actually floating in the air for a few seconds. But then, um, I guess he lets go of whatever anti-gravity stuff he's using and the tanks start just falling to the ground. It's actually, you know, if you think about it, that's pretty horrific if you think about it. But, you know, you're in a tank. You're a, you know, a driver or a gunner or whatever in a tank, and then suddenly you're, you know, up in the sky and now falling, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. That's pretty, that's pretty scary when you get down to the brass tacks of it. Of course, that's a bit beyond uh, what we're going to talk, what they're going to address, I should say, on an Ultraman episode. But, you know, that, that's pretty rough stuff, you know? I mean, at least if you're fighting a traditional monster, there's a chance that maybe you can, you know, retreat and get back to safety. But, you know, if you're in a tank and suddenly you're falling to the ground, there's not much you can do. Part of this also that's interesting, as I said, Bolton doesn't have limbs, so he rolls around, which is just another strange visual and a very memorable bit in that he's a big rock, so how do rocks move? They gotta roll, you know? Rock and roll, man, that's the way it is. Now, the fight with Ultraman is kind of unusual in that Bolton essentially uses all of his powers to keep Ultraman away from him. And this makes sense, again, since he can't defend himself in other ways, he has to use... You know, he freezes Ultraman in place, he spins him around with the camera spinning around, he traps him underground. 
basically, it's almost as if Bolton is not being aggressive per se as just really defensive. Um, because all of his offensive attacks are to change the laws of reality and the laws of physics. So it's almost as if he's not, like I said, he's not being aggressive. He's not attacking with a beam that's going to hurt Ultraman. He's trying to basically just stall him and hold him in place. And as such, the color timer comes on very quickly. So to me, it seems pretty like a pretty linear progression of logic. Ultraman is obviously using a lot of energy to break out of the uh, the wave of reality that Bolton is using to warp around him. So it's not that he's taking a lot of punches and he's being thrown around and he's got to, you know, fly and try and catch them or something like that. But it's that exertion of energy to break free of the, uh, of, of the, the field of, of warped reality that Bolton has created. That means the color timer comes on very fast. So I actually like that. Again, the color timer, obviously it serves the purpose of limiting the amount of time that Ultraman has to be on screen, which is a very cost conscious approach but when you use it smartly and use it well like it's done here it makes a lot of sense and does build up some drama um now of course uh it takes two shots of the specium ray to destroy bolton because he is pretty tough and then picking up and actually crushing the little bits of the meteor i thought was a nice touch and again go it, it circles back around to the kind of science fictiony aspects of this it's not you know like oh we dug too deep and we woke a monster which is a daikaiju story here this is a strange meteor that just comes together and somehow forms life you know i said that bolton is a very interesting and memorable creature because he is so inhuman so here uh having him revert to just being a simple rock that ultraman can crush is a nice way to kind of close the circle on that aspect of the story now, in the, the uh, closeout to the story, we cut back inside to the HQ, and Arashi has the spider shot ready to go. And he's saying, we'll take this thing out with this. That really amuses me, that Arashi, that's his solution. He's going to open fire with the spider shot. That's going to take it out. He doesn't have a plan B. <laughs> that's very much Arashi's character. He doesn't have a lot to do in this episode, uh, but I do like that little character bit. Now, the, the bigger deal here in the wrap-up is that Hoshino gets a uniform and a spot on the team for being the one to discover Bolton's ability to combine back together. And basically, as the Science Patrol has taken uh, the fragments from uh, Sir Yesterday and the fragments from Dr. Kamaguchi and put them under lock and key, Hoshino goes and talks to Sir Yesterday, and Sir Yesterday says, oh, that would be a very bad idea to put them back together. And so he goes to the HQ and tells Fuji, we've got a separate, but Fuji thinks, you know, uh, what do you, you don't know what you're talking about, just kind of shoes him out. That's how Fuji and Hoshino are together outside, is because she is escorting him off the site when Bolton combines and comes out. Um, now, giving him a uniform and making him an actual member of the team is a definitely a change of direction in the character. We've seen Hoshino hang out with them. We've seen him do other things, like when he was a scout leader and have other activities. And while it's interesting because you, you would think that by making him a uniformed member of the team, that would mean, oh, he's going to be a regular character. He does pop up in the rest of the series, including the episode we're going to cover next, but he does not really become a major focus as we move into the second half, which is uh, kind of odd looking back in retrospect. Now, I kind of wonder if, you know, maybe that was the intention was to make Hoshino a more major focus, and then they simply moved away from it, or maybe the response wasn't all that good. But 
It's, it's interesting to see that it does kind of play into the, what we would call the Kenny trope here in the modern, uh, <laughs> in the modern post Misty, uh, West. But it doesn't really embrace it all the way. Now, admittedly, Hoshino does do a good job in this episode. He is, does kind of figure it out. And he figures it out through, not through, you know, stupid, you know, ridiculous kid logic, but by actually asking questions of the people involved in the case. And I thought that was a nice touch as well. So we will see how Hoshino is portrayed and then what kind of role he plays going forward uh, as we continue to go through this series. Now... Uh, really a good episode using more Ultra Q style science fiction on the front end than we'd normally seen in Ultraman episode, which to me, again, helps. I like that. I like getting different story types rather than just another monster on the loose. This one is more of a, of a non-monstery science fiction in the front end. I very much like the reality warping scenarios, which so far are very unique in this series. We haven't seen that type of, uh, Mon- that type of uh, power from a monster yet. The closest really would be Bolton's kind of ninja magic. And that was a little bit different because Bolton was only affecting himself. Whereas here, Bolton, I don't know, uh, can affect others around him. So I thought that was a, a nice touch. And as I said, Bolton, memorably strange monster. The fight is unorthodox, but well put together and uh, satisfying at the end. So all in all, a very solid sci-fi heavy episode of Ultraman, and I was very glad to watch it. Now, um, again, as we talked about previously, you could watch these on uh, ShoutFactoryTV.com. Those have been taken down. Uh, the Mill Creek DVDs, I still think, are your best bet. You can get the whole se- the whole series for like ten bucks. And so, if you're, if I mean, if you're listening to this show, I think that's worth the ten bucks to get the whole series of Ultraman with the both subtitled and dubbed audio tracks available uh, to listen. I mean, it's 10 bucks. You, I mean, you're, uh, if you're like me, you'll probably spend 10 bucks on something that you don't need and you won't use because it's like, ooh, shiny. Whereas here, you know, 10 bucks for a DVD set's a pretty good deal. So, all right, I'm going to take a real quick break and we will be back with our second episode of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. (sighs) Okay, you guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Back to Ultraman. All right, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 18, entitled Brother from Another Planet, first aired on TBS on November 13th, 1966. Our director is Samaji Nanagase. Our writer is Ru Minamakawa and Tetsuo Kinjo. And our special effects, once again, by Koichi Takano. And again, our synopsis is adapted from the Ultraman Wikia at ultra.wikia.com. 
When a toxic fog falls over Tokyo and starts affecting the people, the science patrol go to investigate. There, Arashi and Ide spot the alien Zayrab in disguise. Arashi fires at the alien, thinking him hostile, but Zayrab claims to be the friend of humanity and offers to remove the fog as proof of his good intentions. Zayrab removes the toxic fog as well as returning to orbit a space shuttle which was supposed to have been orbiting Jupiter, but ended up lost around Saturn. Unknown to the science patrol, however, Zerab has mentally controlled Ide and uses him to spy on a council meeting which is determining if the alien can be trusted. Hayata is sent to investigate the shuttle, and meanwhile Zerab impersonates Fuji to incapacitate Oshino at Science Patrol HQ. In orbit, Hayata discovers the ship and that Zerab has enslaved the astronauts and used their ship to get to the Earth. When Hayata tries to return home to warn the others, Zerab gets into the Science Patrol shuttle and stops him, revealing that he knows Hayata is Ultraman and that he will use that knowledge to conquer Earth. Trapping Hayata in metal bands, Zerab disguises himself as Ultraman and attacks the city. Zerab then appears at a council meeting and insists that the Science Patrol should attack Ultraman if he returns. This causes much argument among the council members who still have faith in Ultraman. Later that night, Zerab disguises himself as Imposter Ultraman once again and restarts his rampage. However, Hoshino is able to find where Zerab had hidden Hayata and frees him, allowing him to become the real Ultraman and clear his reputation. Ultraman manages to shed Zerab of his disguise when the Imposter tries to escape. Zerab fights hard against Ultraman, but is eventually killed by the Specium Ray, thus ending his attempt at invasion. We get an alien invasion episode. It's been a little while since we've had one of these, since the last Bolton episode. And you know, uh, on Ultraman, we have our mix of monsters and aliens. So we're back with having an alien here with uh, Zerab. So let's get uh, right into our notes. Now, the right at the beginning of the episode, there's a mist, a, a white mist that floats through and causes panic and people start to choke. Now, in the modern contest, this looks very much like a bioterror attack, especially, you know, when one thinks about the uh, the subway train attacks in Japan uh, that happened, uh, you know, well, a while ago now. But uh, so that that motif is the first thing that as a modern viewer springs into my mind. Now, obviously, we are in the 1960s, so nothing quite as real as that is, is addressed here. And that's, you know, I, I watch these a lot for escapism, so I'm glad not to have to deal with, you know, the, the unfortunate realities of modern life here. Um, as the uh, mist is initially being investigated, Hoshino is uniformed and present with the team. So obviously this new direction is sticking for at least this episode. He is, however, told that it is too dangerous to go to the field and he should stay there which is like, oh, stay here. It's like, that's, you know, and Fuji's like, what? I stay here all the time. What's wrong with that? So I thought that was a, a nice touch. Um, the Science Patrol, Arashi and Ide, they go out to investigate. They determine that the cloud is radioactive, uh, naturally, as this is a Showa story of a movie or a Showa story made in Japan. So, of course, radiation has to be involved there as well. One has to wonder what this was doing to all the poor people that were exposed to it, if the cloud is not only toxic, but also radioactive. So, uh, not a good day to be out in Tokyo, apparently. Uh, now, we first see Alien Zayrab. He is... He looks rather film noir because he is wearing a trench coat to cover himself up. Now, Alien Zayrab is... He's, he's humanoid shape. He's all gray. He's got a really big head 
that kind of grows out of his shoulders. He doesn't have a neck per se and two small eyes and a little like multi-pointed beak for a mouth. Um, not as interesting looking from a, you know, potential com combat standpoint as like Balton or later aliens like Magma. But, you know, he, he looks like a, he definitely looks like an alien. He looks almost as if they were trying to go for like the grays. But this uh, 1966, I don't know, does that predate the Greys? Um, somebody out there, write in and let me know. I'm not really up on my uh, uh, Roswell. I guess Roswell was uh, was before this, so maybe the Greys alien was already kind of a thing. So maybe that, I think that's what they're kind of shoot for here. But him and his trench coat, like I said, is very nice. Now, uh, Ide and Arashi see him, and they go kind of freak out because there's an alien walking the streets. And so Zerab jumps up and is climbing up the building, and Arashi fires at him with the spider shot, kind of in a panic. Which you don't, is, is, I guess a, a human response to it that you're surprised and, oh, you, you know, you, you assume that it's hostile. Um, but what I like here is that, uh, the captain questions him on this. He goes, why did you fire? You know, so it was, it's not just this, um, you know, shoot first, ask questions sometime next week mentality. He actually is kind of called to task for opening fire on a, an alien life form that at this point they don't know whether they are benign or hostile. And now Zarab says, it's okay, it's okay. You know, it was a misunderstanding and that he is, you know, here to help everybody, which, you know, that should be your um, your your first sign, right? <laughs> Anytime an alien says they come in peace, they typically don't, right? I mean, if watching sci-fi movies and TV shows has taught me anything. Um, Zarab himself is from the planet Zarab, naturally, um, in the eighth galaxy. I don't know what that means again more just kind of science fiction techno babble but okay yeah maybe maybe the eighth galaxy is right next to space uh no space hunter m nebula i don't know it, it's out there somewhere now again uh his his name in japanese is uh zarab senjin which is uh you know uh, alien zarab and kind of the modern translations that we've seen for modern ultraman shows uh, i've seen them called like zarabian so, you know, they, they add the IAN at the end of the alien names instead of saying alien. They, they kind of treat them as a, you know, as a member of the Zorabian race. Uh, I, I like the older way just because I'm more used to it. And it, it's, uh, I can, it, it works for every race that you can just say, you know, uh, Zerab Sengen or Balton Sejin. And it, it's, it's the same thing without trying to think of how I would, you know, Romanize the, the suffix. So. Now, at later on in the story, Zerab walks right into Science Patrol HQ. Apparently, we are beyond any and all safety measures because the government thinks that they can trust this guy. And so in he walks, uh, carrying a computer translation device under his arm. And it's totally not a weapon. Actually, it's probably not. But, you know, now his dubbed voice is really, really bizarre. It's like a really bad fake Minnesota accent put through a vocoder. I'm going to cut a little bit in here and you tell me what the heck he's saying because I had to really listen to it. I am from the planet Zarab in the 8th galaxy. Zarab. In our language it means murder. This is our intention to live in harmony with everyone. All the mortals on earth are our neighbors and through us you will acquire much knowledge of the universe. And uh, why are you telling all this to us? Yeah, so you see, it's pretty difficult to understand. And 
I mean, his voice in the Japanese one is a little more, is, is obviously easier to understand, but, uh, man, that dub voice, that is, that is rough. It's like, oh man, what are you saying? We don't even know. Are you, are you what? It's, it's almost like, uh, uh, who is it? Um, uh, Kenneth Mars in, in Young Frankenstein. It's like, what? <laughs> that would have been a much different episode, but. Later on, uh, Zayrab is disguised as Fuji and he comes up on Hoshino. Now this is, this is, this is an interesting thing because we do see that Fuji is at the council meeting and then Hoshino is at the HQ and then Fuji walks in. The first saw was, Hey, wait a minute. That's a continuity mistake because Fuji is at the conference. And so it's, it's a nicely done bit because immediately we think it's a mistake and we're suspicious. And then, of course, Zareb reveals himself and he takes out Oshino. Now, this is also a bit of foreshadowing that one of Zareb's um, special powers is his ability to shapeshift and to take other forms. Hmm, I wonder if that might come in handy later on in the episode. So I, I like that little scene very, very uh, a lot because I think it, it gave us a, a quick insight into Zareb and also uh, played with our expectations based on what we already had seen in the episode. Hayata goes out into space. His spacesuit is essentially a helmet and a turtleneck. Um, they don't believe in, uh, really bulky spacesuits in the science patrol. That costs the taxpayers money. So, um, the other bit in the uh, shuttle that all, that really stands out to me, and it's one, I don't know, I, I these were more common in the 50s and 60s, and that kind of got phased out, but it's, it always stands out is that, um, he goes for an EVA without an airlock. So he goes up, he puts the spacesuit on, goes up, opens the hatch, walks out, closes the hatch. Okay. But then he comes back in. Where did the air come from? Because if you don't have an airlock, you've voided all the air out into, into space. Where did you get an atmosphere from back inside the ship after that? And so that just like, it's, yeah, again, I understand it's, it's a, it's a small set and all that, but that, that always is just one of those things that bugs me. It's like when you see EVA without an airlock, you know, they do that at the end of the black hole and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense there either. But, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. Now back on earth, uh, Hoshino saves the day. Okay. So maybe what I said last time was wrong, but I, I'm going off my memory of the series. He saves the day by breaking Hayata free. Now this part is a little dumb because Hoshino brings a bunch of tools with him, thinking that he might have to use the tools to get to Hayata or, you know, uh, or, or otherwise help him get out, right? And one of the tools that he brings is the beta capsule, because Hayata just kind of left it at HQ when he was going out into space. I'm sorry, but that's pretty stupid. I think if I'm going out into space and there's a chance that, you know, best, even if it's not a monster or an alien, if there's a chance that, I don't know, the ship has some kind of problem and I can't get home, I'm going to want the tool that we tur will turn me into the giant that can breathe and fly in space. I'm just saying. But other than that, you know, okay, fine. He, he, some way for him to get it. Now, I, as Hoshino is desperately trying to cut these metal bands, he's getting really upset because he can't do it. And then we see his tears fall on the metal band and then the metal band snaps. I've seen some people claim this means, oh, the Hoshino's tears are what break the band. Eh, I don't believe that. I, I think that it's more of a symbolic thing that it's his efforts and the, you know, as he's doing it, he's, he's observing himself so much and he's getting so upset that the tears hit it and then they break apart. I don't like the, uh, I, I don't want to accept that the tears of Hoshino has steel cracking capabilities. That's a bit beyond what I'm willing to accept on the show. Uh, so I'm just going to leave it at that and, and move along. 
Now our fight is Ultra versus Ultra as we get Ultraman versus Imposter Ultraman. Imposter Ultraman is played by an earlier version of the Ultraman suit, so they do look slightly different, but close enough for government work. And the Science Patrol is ostensibly a government organization, so we're willing to go with that. Uh, the fight itself is, is, is pretty nice because you get two agile characters fighting here. Uh, the first one I really like is that uh, Imposter Ultraman goes to take off and fly away, obviously to retreat because his ruse is not going to work if the real Ultraman is there. And Ultraman hits him with a specium bay at like point blank range. I mean, like right next to him. So he's shooting up maybe at like a 45 degree angle or so, maybe even a little bit less than that as uh, Imposter Ultraman tries to fly away and just bam and knocks him straight down and knocks the disguise out, which is really cool. Then again, Zerab goes to try and escape and uh, flies off. And so Ultraman flies after him. And then it's, uh, you know, crashes into him, this gigantic flying tackle in in the sky. And then you see the two of them jockeying for position as they're about to crash back down to Earth. And Ultraman is on top and crashes Zerab into the ground and stands above him. And Zerab is, is not in the best of shape after that. So it's one more specium ray and that's it. And that's the end of uh, Alien Zerab. Um, now, interesting here is that unlike the previous episode, there's no wrap-up. It's pretty much blast him, fly away, we are done, because we are out of time on this episode. So you get that sometimes, that, you know, the wrap-up might just be, oh, you know, just thank you, Ultraman, or whatever. Here, it's just not even that. It's just fly away, and we're done. Um, so, you know, hey, it's sometimes you gotta you got a lot of scenes you got to fit in. Something's got to go somewhere. A more standard episode uh, than the Bolton episode, still a little different because of Zarab's duplicitous nature and the ability to, um, you know, he impersonates Fuji, he controls Ide, he impersonates Ultraman, so a little bit different than a more straight-up fight because obviously, in hand-to-hand, Zarab himself is no match for Ultraman. Uh, really, the best-remembered bit of this episode and the one that I've seen uh, the most things related to like toys and merch is imposter Ultraman and the fight against uh, the imposter Ultraman, which could have been longer because, you know, he knocks the disguise out fairly early in the fight, but it's still quite nice. It's well done to have, you know, the two of them rumbling with each other where you have two agile um, uh, combatants fighting. Also like at one point, Ultraman chops imposter Ultraman in the chest and then grabs his hand as if it hurts because, you know, Ultraman's really tough. And even Imposter Ultraman obviously is pretty tough. So, uh, Zerab is one of the ultra alien races who become recurring as the series goes on. And this is a good introduction for him. I think it plays up, you know, the, the Baltans have their, you know, their ninja magic and they're sneaky, but they're also kind of combat oriented. Whereas Zerab is very much a, um, outwit and out, you know, outsmart your opponent rather than out, outstrength your opponent or outfight your opponent, uh, type of, ra- um, alien race. And so I think it's a nice introduction to have this one with him using various underhanded means to try and accomplish his invasion goal. It's a good episode of Ultraman. Definitely, uh, not one I would recommend skipping over, but not one of the best. Zerab is definitely a B level, um, uh, opponent. And while he does become kind of, you know, show up again in the modern series with, with the other alien races, he's not one of the best remembered ones. So I think it's worth watching, but not, not one of the top tier episodes, but certainly a good one. So two good episodes here. The show's really hit its stride. We're about halfway through the series now. And, uh, you know, they've gotten, obviously the people both in front and behind the camera have gotten very comfortable with how this show works. 
and how they make it uh, week in and week out. And it's starting to show up on screen. They're, they're really hitting their stride. So again, this episode is available on the Mill Creek DVD set. So I would recommend picking that up. And, uh, you know, hey, it's um, Ultraman is, is not a super deep show most of the time. And these episodes are not real deep, but they're a lot of fun. And frankly, if I'm watching an Ultraman show, fun is like the top thing I'm looking for. If I'm having fun while watching it, I consider that a success. So what do you folks think? Have you watched either of these episodes? Uh, do you remember them from your childhood maybe? Or maybe you've watched them more recently? Send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. We can talk about them here on the show. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 16 was published by Marvel Comics and was cover dated November 1978 and was released on or about August 1st, 1978. Our information, as always, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our cover is by artist Herb Trimpey and it portrays a close-up, actually, of Godzilla right up close and personal with him as he is roaring his defiance at a group of cowboys, uh, one of whom has um, looped his lasso around one of Godzilla's teeth and is being taken for quite a wild ride, uh, while the others uh, open fire with their uh, revolvers at uh, at, at Godzilla. It's got a yellow, kind of orange gradient background. It says, Jaws of Fear is our cover copy. Uh, our writer was Doug Mensch. Our penciler is, again, Herb Trimpey. Inker is Daniel Green. Letterer is Gene Simek. Colorist is Francois Moly. Our editor is Bob Hall. And the title is The Great Godzilla Roundup. And our synopsis is, again, adapted from marvel.wikia.com. With Godzilla still on the rampage near Salt Lake City, John Hawk, after having his house and ranch trampled on, arranges another group of cowboys to try and rustle up the creature, which he believes has been eating his cattle. The cowboys initially want to herd Godzilla into Box Canyon, but Lefty Walsh makes sure that does not happen by causing a rock slide to block the entrance. The group then closes in on Godzilla and tries to wrangle the giant monster, attacking with rifles and lariats. One crazy hombre named Luke... (laughs) manages to rope and ride Godzilla for a while. However, Godzilla soon tires of this nonsense and smashes into the canyon, where the men find that the monster has led them to the cattle, which in actuality have been rustled by Lefty Walsh and his boss Bill Ford. A gunfight breaks out between Ford's men and Hawk's men, but Ford's men aren't killers, and the battle is short. When Ford tries to shoot Hawk from afar, Godzilla knocks him off the canyon peak to his death. And after the whole ordeal, Hawk and the others leave the monster to find its own way. 
Next issue, the beginning of the most imaginatively offbeat epic in Godzilla's history, an unforgettable tale we call Of Lizards, Great and Small. So we wrap up the two-part uh, kind of Wild West storyline here in Godzilla, and uh, it kind of goes as we expect with uh, Hawk organizing a group to go take out Godzilla. Um, I think this one was better than the last one and uh, kind of raised my opinion overall of the story, I think, but let's get right into the notes. So the cover, as I said, has a close-up on Godzilla's face, and what the um, effect of this is that it shows the humans in a lot more detail than we normally do, because normally on the covers for Godzilla as it was uh, on Shogun Warriors, also by Trimpy, was that because of the large scale of the heroes, the humans are very, very small. Whereas here, it's a very tight close-up, so we get to see the humans in a lot more detail. There's some interesting work on the shirts and um, other outfits being worn by the cowboys. This one guy's got kind of a, a green check plaid shirt that I actually quite like. Looks very nice. So it's, it's just an interesting perspective that we haven't really seen so far in the series. Uh, the yellow and orange background, it's kind of plain, but I do like that it suggests a western sunset style, you know, setting. So, it's even though it's kind of plain with just the two-tone colors, I like the way it's used here and it's, it's appropriate to the setting. I do like this cover uh, a good deal better than the previous one, so uh, that, that alone is, is a benefit. On page one, we get our uh, splash page where we are looking up at a um, the Andre angle, as if you were, at Godzilla as he is smashing uh, Bill um, John Hawk's uh, ranch. And he's got his big belly again, big sumo physique once again, as Trimpy has uh, shown here for Godzilla in this series. He's also kind of flexing his arms. He looks like he's uh, kind of doing the Hulk Hogan double flex there, which is a little interesting. Um, uh, one detail I really like is that Hawk's Cadillac with the giant longhorns on the front, is going flying right at us. Uh, Godzilla must have gotten underneath it and kicked it up with his with his uh, toes as he dug underneath it, like kicking under a soccer ball. So very nice to see it kind of flying at us. It looks like he borrowed it from J.R. Ewing, which is uh, topical. But uh, nice rubble here. The buildings really do look smashed up, and you see shingles flying off and different bits lying around. Um, much better scale here than in the similar scene depicting this in the previous issue. So as a splash page, I think this works much better than uh, kind of the, the, the kind of ending panels from the last issue to show the, the similar uh, scenario. Turning over to page five now, panels one through three, we get kind of the standard uh, Western odor drama here, um, you know, where, where we got Ford talking about uh, buying out uh, Hawks' cattle and all this. Uh, it's very much a mashup story. You know, it really is a, a Western and a Godzilla story mashed together. So in that aspect, seeing the Western tropes here, like the kind of shady guy coming in to buy up the remaining cattle at a discount price after, you know, what we know is that he's the one who caused the cattle to get rustled in the first place. Very much a Western trope. But again, they're really kind of committing, Mench and company are committing here to combining this as a Western and a Godzilla book. So seeing those Western tropes, it makes sense, and it's kind of appreciated, actually, for me, because it's not just kind of doing a half measure. It's really kind of going, uh, you know, a, a decent way towards being a, a Western-style story. Later on down the page, uh, panel four, uh, we see all the cowboys getting ready. I do like this one because the cowboys themselves look like they could have come from any 
uh, Marvel Western, but this is clearly set in a, a modern Western setting. So there's pickup trucks and stuff like that. And one guy is practicing his roping on the side mirror of one of the trucks. So it's very much a modern cowboy motif here. And lots of big talk from all the cowboys, of course, uh, boasting about how they'll be the ones to take down Godzilla, which is appropriate and ultimately incredibly misguided. But, you know, we kind of knew that going in. On page six, panel two, um, they are tracking Godzilla, and it's there's a series of giant Godzilla footprints. And uh, one of the cowboys says, well, one thing's for dang sure, tracking this critter ain't going to be hard. And I do ag agree with that. However, I would like to say Godzilla's footprints, yeah, those are probably radioactive, guys. You might want to go around them or just keep them at a distance and, you know, just kind of go from one to the next. I wouldn't go. I mean, they're, they're, they're not in them here, but, yeah, I don't know that I would want to get in them. They, that just seems like a good way to get radiation poisoning and die. Uh, then on the next page, on um, page 7, panel 1 is a full height but half width panel showing uh, Godzilla relative to the Box Canyon. A very nice, what I'd call a long shot because we've got a lot of depth of field here. We've got Godzilla and the Box Canyon kind of in the far background. Then we've got a long uh, stretch of, of uh, flat earth uh, reaching up in the midground, coming into the foreground. And then in the foreground, we've got kind of a, a split between two rocks and we see the cowboys riding down between the split and riding out into the flat plain to go chase after Godzilla. It, it, the wide open space of the West is used really nicely in, in this panel and a few others here. And, you know, that's something you can play with when you've got a character as large as Godzilla and the scale difference between Godzilla and the Cowboys. So here, because we've got the Cowboys more in the front, uh, in the, the foreground and the midground, you know, we get uh, a good, a fairly good look at them. But then Godzilla, because he's so large, even though he's in the background, he is actually the largest figure in the panel. So I think it's a really well-constructed panel here. I like this one quite a lot. Over now on uh, page 10, this is where Lefty um, creates the rock slide. And panels 5 and 6, you see him, he's got a, you know, a, a piece of timber lodged into the rocks. And he's really wrenching back on it. He's really exerting himself. And again, if um, you take these four panels, the top panel has Godzilla in it. But if you take the four panels below, take them out of context, and... Um, you know, didn't have the, the dialogue in there. You put that and put it up there. I guarantee you that this day would say, oh, that's from Kid Colt or that's from Rawhide Kid. You know, very much looks like a Marvel Western book. So Trimpy is well suited to doing that. Um, and, and it, and it, it, again, it, it helps sell the mashup of the Western and the Godzilla, which, uh, to me works better overall here. And scenes like this totally help. On the next page, page 11, uh, panel three, after Lefty creates the rock slide, the third panel, is about two-thirds the height of the page and a very narrow, so kind of a, a tall and uh, skinny panel here, but fantastic sense of scale and perspective here because after the rock slide, Godzilla rears around and he faces all the charging cowboys. So you got about a dozen cowboys in the on the bottom of the panel here, and they are tiny. They are essentially stick figures on little, you know, pseudo not pseudo stick figure horses essentially and you see godzilla you know he's almost uh half the height of the frame and he's got his hands reared back like he's getting ready to attack and he's just looking down at them so again after the previous uh panel where we saw the wide open space and the cowboys riding across this big open space to get to godzilla now they've closed the ground and you see just how tiny they are even mounted against the king of the monsters some very nice use of scale here 
Turning over now to page 14, this is the second splash page. Again, scale and depth play a lot of uh, a big role in this panel here because we've got, again, Godzilla in the background, but he's leaning forward. So his head is essentially in the midground. And then we've got one cowboy who looks way too happy. He looks like he's getting goosed off screen or something in the extreme foreground, looking back at the reader, kind of, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. And then everyone else charging at him. The, the tight camera, because it's very tight in, Godzilla's ducking down into the frame. We get really good detail on both the Cowboys and on Godzilla. So this is a really nice splash page. And this, to me, I think is one of the best pages of the entire two-part story. Because it really, this this is like where the rubber meets the road. Uh, this being a mashup of Western and Godzilla. Here is a posse of Cowboys going to, uh, you know, rustle up Godzilla. And Godzilla's having none of this. He, he doesn't, he looks not pleased at all. He's got the dead eye look. And he's getting ready to, uh, uh, to, to lay out some cowpokes there. He's roaring his defiance. This is a really nice page. And, I'm, um, I, this is the better of the two splash pages in the issue. And I really, like I said, I think this one really kind of sells the concept, uh, very strongly. On the next page, on page 15, as the cowboys kind of, you know, encircle and surround Godzilla, we get kind of a similar technique as was done in the previous issue, where Trimpy only shows us one part of Godzilla at a time so that we can see the cowboys interact with him up close. Um, in the first two panels, we see uh, this guy ride up and he throws his lariat right at Godzilla's mouth. So all we see is Godzilla is like his snout and his teeth and his shoulder and part of his hand. That's all we see of him. And when he, he manages to actually lasso a tooth, like on the cover, Godzilla stands up and again, we can see his snout and his hand and a little bit of his chest and thigh, but not we don't see all of Godzilla. Uh, on this page, we only see individual parts of him. Down here on panel four, uh, Godzilla swipes his tail, and uh, with the implication that he knocks these three men off of their horse with a swud, um, all I can say is all three of those men are dead. Uh, never mind the radiation of being that close. If Godzilla tail chops a human, their bones are basically turned into uh, powder because of how much power he would have if he tail chopped you. So those men are dead. Make no bones about it. Never mind that big comics code stamp on the front. The he Godzilla just killed three guys on panel, and I'm going on record as saying that. We turn to page uh, 21 as uh, this guy named Luke ropes Godzilla and rides him on the back of his head. All I can say is that I wish he had worn a yellow shirt like European comic star Lucky Luke. That would have made me very happy as a little side joke. I don't know that Lucky Luke was really well known in America at this point, but you got a cowboy named Luke doing something crazy with a rope. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's not shooting so fast. He's faster than his own shadow. But, you know, a cowboy named Luke, I would think a Lucky Luke. That may just be me. Second point I want to make. This guy is so beyond dead, he doesn't even know it. Uh, just from the proximity to Godzilla, because he's got Godzilla wrapped around the mouth and his, his lariat is like tucked in right at the corner of Godzilla's lips. And then he is sitting on Godzilla's head and pulling back like he would on a bronc yelling, Yahoo, uh, buck to your jaws, ache buster. I ain't in no hurry. Just being that close to Godzilla, this guy has a long, painful death ahead of him. That's not even taking into account turning over to page 22, panels 1 and 2, where he is then thrown off of Godzilla's head towards either the rocks below or the mesa below. All I can say to that is splat. So long, Luke. We hardly knew you. He's an appealing fellow. They're going to be appealing him off of the floor. Hmm. 
Further on down the page, uh, panels three and four, Godzilla gets pissed off, and he has not, he has had enough of this crap, and he is not going to hear it. So panel three, we see him, you know, the smoke steaming out of his nose and steaming out of his mouth in his wide open roar, and then just lets loose in panel four of this torrent of atomic fire and completely blasts the uh, rock slide that had uh, the lefty had created to block the canyon. Um, yeah, it's very nice. I like the coloring. Uh, a lot of mix of, I, I, a lot of people don't really like this because Godzilla's atomic breath in the comic, excuse me, in the, uh, movies was always, you know, white or bluish white. And in the comic, it's yellow and red. It looks more like fire. But they always describe it as atomic fire breath. So it's okay. And visually, it pops, especially in a Bronze Age book like this. I don't know if you had done it like a lightish blue, if that would have looked right. Whereas here, it really does pop with the yellow and orange, yellow, red, and orange uh, coloring. Um, page 23, panel 3, uh, we get a panel of um, a short panel, but the entire width of the page. Wide panel, once again, showing a lot of Western scenery. It's got a big, the big, uh, the two, may, uh, the big open plains, the cowboys riding in behind Godzilla. We just see Godzilla's tail sneaking out of the canyon. See the two halves of the canyon. Uh, the faraway sky with the light, um, kind of white and pink clouds in the background and almost like, um, the cross hatching, but, um, in the horizon looks like a haze you might see in a wide open plane like that. Very nicely done. Again, if not for Godzilla's tail, this looks like some, like a shot out of like a John Ford Western film, especially with the, the widescreen format of the panel layout. So I really like this panel. And again, I've said it a few times. I think this book does a better job of integrating the two halves and images like this are what sell it. This looks like a Western to me. Flipping over now to pages 26 and 27. This is where the odor drama comes to a head as uh, Ford's men and Hawk's men uh, have a bit of a shootout. This sequence reminds me a lot of the Megan's versus Baton's interlude uh, from the Mega Monsters issues. Uh, they're important to the story because it's the blow off of the uh, non-monster. I, I would say human, but obviously the Megans and the Batons aren't human. But to the non-monster portions of the story, this is the blow off. So it's important. But it's less interesting here in the recap because it has to do with, uh, again, Godzilla's the star. This is kind of the supporting cast stuff. It's one of those things that even though, yeah, he does have a quote unquote regular supporting cast the rotating supporting cast often drive the stories we got that with the mega monsters and we're getting it here as well um on panel one on page 27 which is uh about a third height and a full width we get the the wide panel of the gunfight and again this looks like something you might see in a western film as we've got uh, some of the men hiding behind rocks uh, these are um, um ford's men hiding behind the rocks and kind of popping out and shooting at Hawks men who were all on horseback because they were just chasing uh, Godzilla. So you see some of the horses running off. You see some men have obviously already fell. They're either uh, being horse thrown or they're they're dead on the ground. We see horses rearing up and lots of uh, s uh, you know, bram and blam sound effects for the gunfire. So this is a real nice panel of this Western drama stuff, which is you know not directly Godzilla related, but I I do like the fact that they do blow this off in a in a reasonable way. And it does make sense to, and is true to the Western um, uh, portion of this story. Over on page 30, as uh, Ford is up high and is getting ready to shoot Hawk, on uh, panel 5 of this, Godzilla is leaning in behind him. So we just see Godzilla's snout a little bit of his eye and his gaping maw. 
How does Ford not hear him? That's what I want to know. I mean, Godzilla's not exactly a sneaky monster, uh, but somehow I guess Ford is so wrapped up in his revenge plot here that he, he doesn't realize. It's a cool panel with Godzilla leaning in. And then that leads us over to page 31, panel 1, where Godzilla flick, uh, and it's so long Ford. Um, there's some ambiguity here as to whether Godzilla did this on purpose or happened to reach out and knock Ford off. Um, some of the cowboys discuss this with, uh, with Hawks. Uh, there's some, like I said, it, it's kind of like in the scene of Godzilla versus King Ghidorah from 1991, which we covered uh, a long time ago on this show. Is Godzilla acting intelligently or is he acting like a monster here? It, and it's hard to say. It's a, um, you know, it, it's, and it's one of those things that I like the ambiguity because a daikaiju obviously has a personality, obviously has some level of intelligence, but they do also act like beasts. So I like that it's left unclear. It's to me somewhat ironic to get this in a Marvel book because that's the Marvel ending, right? Is that everything is wrapped up, but not everything is tied up with a bow and some things are still ambiguous. So, uh, then later on, on the page, on the fifth panel, um, somebody breaks out, well, who was that masked lizard? And I'm sure that, uh, reference is very dated nowadays. I remember that because I do remember watching the Lone Ranger when I was a little kid. And, uh, as well as I believe listening to some of the old timey radio with the Lone Ranger. But yeah, I can't imagine that joke makes much sense to, uh, anyone younger than I in 2018 as I'm reading this. So, um, overall, the conclusion to the cowboy story actually, to me, was a lot more fun than the previous one. Even if, you know, really looking at it, both parts were kind of slight, you know, especially compared to the Mega Monsters. All told, as a single two-part story, I like it now. Uh, I like it better now, having read both parts of it. Uh, reading just the first issue left me kind of eh, uh, but I enjoyed the second part a lot more, so putting the two of them together, I think, is a better reading experience. Not an essential Godzilla story by any stretch, but as a monster western crossover story, it's not bad at all. It's pretty entertaining from uh, taken from that perspective. Now, if you would like to read this, uh, it is collected, as always, in the Essential Godzilla, so look for that one. Uh, taking a look through real quick for uh, any ads or anything like that. We do get the uh, interchangeable word of Micronauts with the battle cruiser. I was too young to remember Micronauts. They, they've they tried to bring it back a few times. I've, I've never gotten into it. I've, I've tried, but I guess I just I just don't know that one. Not like I do like, you know, G.I. Joe or Transformers and stuff like that. Um, we get a house ad for five mighty new Marvel specials, including uh, we get uh, the Silver Surfer one, which is the one I always think of like this, and the best of Spidey Super Stories, or as it's known here on Two True Freaks, Spidey Stupid Stories. And that Silver Surfer one I've always remembered. We get a two-page ad for the uh, the infamous Milk Duds Super Duds sweepstakes with everybody's favorite Dr. Doom. I know Professor Allen just, uh, his ears just perked up with this great two-page ad showing Dr. Doom pointing right at us and saying, heal, super dogs. Um, this is like the classic Clark superhero contest, except this one also is Milk Duds. They do have the whole array of the Clark uh, candy bars, Clark Milk Duds. Peanut butter log, light, crispy, crunchy peanut butter, black cow, zagnut. Uh, all these ca candies, that, except for milk duds, you can't really get anymore. So, uh, We get a house ad for the human fly. Without a doubt, the wildest superhero ever because he's real. I, I've never read the human fly. <laughs> I've seen a few issues in cheapy bins. I'm going to have to pick some up at some point. Uh, let's see. We get your hodgepodge ad. Uh, we do get a bullpen bulletins. 
uh, with Stan's soapbox. We're talking, and uh, then some of the notes here, they're talking about issue 200 of the Fantastic Four. Um, uh, Dave Cockrum and Patty Cockrum uh, got married. Uh, that was very nice. Uh, some Bill Mantlode and the uh, Micronauts, uh, Ernie Chan inking Conan. And we got David Michelinie coming on as the new writer on Iron Man with issue number 116, starting the legendary Bob and Dave run, the first of Bob uh, Layton and Dave Michelinie writing on uh, Iron Man. Some great stuff there, so very cool. Uh, then we get the Hostess ad this time, and this is one we have not seen before. It stars the almighty God of Thunder himself, Thor, in Good Overcomes Evil, and it goes a little something like this. I cannot tell if this formidable opponent be man or machine. Even the mighty mallet of Mjolnir cannot make a dent in his attack. The cursed thunder god loses some of his thunder. His strength prevails not against my creature. As long as mystic Mjolnir can deflect thy thrust, thou dost fight in vain. But I know not how long I can sustain mine own strength. By the gods, my mystic forces inform me this is a being whose mind and muscle are under the spell of an evil mind. We must tempt his senses back to reality. By thunder, he stops in his tracks at the sight of hostess fruit pies. Indeed, what power can resist the delicious, real fruit filling, the light, tender crust? Hostess fruit pies have reawakened his own being and destroyed the spell. Enjoy thyself. Eat thy fill of apple, cherry, and peach fruit pies. It is good to be one's own man again and to enjoy such goodness. Curses! You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. You know, as Hostess Fruit Pie ads go, this one's not bad. You know, you got Thor battling this big, it can't tell if it, I mean, obviously it's a guy in a suit of armor, but he looks like it might be a robot, kind of like the, uh, um, like the Destroyer. You know, he's a big golden guy with this uh, pole arm, small pole arm, and oh, him and Thor fighting. That's not a bad one, you know? I don't really know what the deal is for the unnamed guy who's controlling him, unless this is a character from Thor I'm just not familiar with. Uh, but uh, this one's not bad. I'm not, not much of a Thor guy, but, you know, I do like the, uh, when they do the, uh, the you know, Thor battling strong guys. It always reminds me, like, his, that was his role a lot in the early issues of Avengers after Hulk left, is Thor was always the guy that was the powerhouse. So, it's not a bad little uh, hostess ad. And uh, that's about it. We get uh, nothing else interesting. No uh, crazy ads on the inside or, or back cover or anything. So uh, that covers it for Godzilla number 16. What do you folks think? Have you read this one? What do you think of the little Wild West interlude in Marvel Comics Godzilla? Why don't you write in and let me know. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back to close out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, 
Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time for some, you hear it in my hands, some listener feedback. And if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I can also be found on Facebook and Twitter, and all of that stuff is in the outro for the show. So if you want to get in touch, please give a listen. So let's get to our first email. This comes from a loyal listener and friend of the show, Rich S., and uh, does not have a subject, so Rich begins. Hi, Luke. I just gave the newest EDD episode a listen and was glad to see that someone can give a fair shake to Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. I had heard before how it was meant to be a Kong film originally, but sure had no idea about the long and sordid history of Giant Condor. <laughs> Who would have guessed he, meaning the prop, had made so many appearances? Not I. Or I. I had no idea. Nothing with that crazy bird, man. And he's on there for literally a minute. <sighs> Some of the, you know, these monsters, man. What can you do? So Rich continues. Uh, you have me in agreement that the AIP version is more pleasing to the ears than the voice actor choices of the international cut. Invariably, the AIP voices are superior in all the old Showa kaiju films. How can one beat the experience of hearing the voice of Speed Racer and Son of Godzilla? I agree with this, and not just the... This is very true in the Gamera series, where the old AIP TV dubs, which are readily available for the most part on um, archive.org and other public domain sites, are much better voices than the the uh, Toei International... Excuse me, the Dai International version. So I agree with you right there, Rich. Uh, speaking of which, Son of Godzilla should be coming up rather soon on your podcast. There are no affordable choices for that film on Amazon at this time, but there is a download slash stream of it at archive.org, and it is the AIP dub. Not only does it feature the aforementioned Peter Fernandez doing a very speed racerish vocals, but I could swear that Toho actor Akihiko Harada is voiced by the same performer that dubbed him in the original Ultraman show. This is what I was referring to back at the top of the show about Son of Godzilla, that there really isn't any good easy, cheap way to get Son of Godzilla officially on, on DVD as it stands right now in 2018. This, um, you can find this, uh, this, this, um, stream that, uh, Rich is referring to on archive.org, which is a site I really like. It's very, very cool. And I will definitely be taking a look at this when we get to Son of Godzilla. Peek behind the curtain. Son of Godzilla is on the schedule for this year. We'll see if we get there. You know, I always plan out my year at the beginning of the year and, and I don't always make it uh, just from life and work and other things but I'm going to really shoot for this and I'm definitely going to be using uh, this um, this Walter Reed TV version as part of the coverage there um, Rich goes on as for Marvel Godzilla yeah the cowboy issues were not the best and the series never again reached the kaiju mashing brilliance of the mega monster storyline however the tale that begins with issue 17 and which pretty much takes us to the end of the series, is a bit better than the Western one. There is some really great crossover action with Marvel characters ahead, especially one Jack Kirby creation in particular. Oh, yes, I know who you're talking about. Oh, and thanks for making me smile at the choice of background music you made for the review. You can't beat 
Valley of Guanji. Looking forward to more Godzilla comics and Ultraman shows. Rich S. And, um, yes, I used the Valley of Guanji music again, again this time. I thought it was just too appropriate with the Cowboys versus Godzilla. And Rich has attached to this a wonderful piece of CG art. Uh, I guess it's his take on the Valley of Guanji where we have some cowboys trying to, uh, rope up Guanji here in the valley. And I'm going to be putting this up in the show notes. This is very cool. I really appreciate this. This is really nice stuff. And I'm glad to find another Valley of Guanji fan, another Harryhausen fan. Rich, thank you very much for writing in. Glad you're enjoying the show. And thank you for not only the artwork, but also the link uh, to the Walter Reed version of Son of Godzilla. I really appreciate that. I hope you're enjoying the show. All right. Our uh, second email tonight is from my good friend, Mr. Adam Tebow. And Adam writes, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Hey, Luke, I wanted to write in about your recent episode covering Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. That movie has a special place in my heart, not only because of the MST3K connection, but because scenes from it were used as bumpers for the sci-fi channel's themed weekday marathons. Each day of the week during the summer had a different theme, like monsters or outer space. And they would run movies and TV shows that fit that theme. Scenes from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster were used in some of the bumpers and ads for the monster-themed days. I spent a large portion of several of my summer vacations on the couch, ignoring the beautiful weather outside so I could watch hours-long blocks of old monster movies. And that, sir, is its own reward. I think we all know that to be the case, huh? Uh, anyway, I've always thought that Eber deserved more attention than he got. While I appreciated his scenes in Godzilla Final Wars... I was a bit disappointed that he got taken down by the human-sized mutants and then reappears just long enough to get taken out immediately by Big G. As always, I've been really enjoying the show. Keep him stomping. Signed, Adam Tebow. Adam, first off, thank you very much for writing in. I did not know that about the bumpers. I don't know that I ever saw those. I remember in the summer uh, on Sci-Fi Channel where they would do a different show every day. So, like, Monday might be Battlestar Galactica, Tuesday might be Land of the Giants, and so on. I remember them doing that during the day. I don't remember them doing the themed ones like that. That's very neat. I will have to uh, dig around on YouTube, see if I can find some of those old commercial bumpers. And I agree with you about Ibra. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit in the show. I think Ibra, he got paired with the wrong monster. Because against King Kong, Ibra is a real threat. Against Godzilla, well, not so much, you know. And, yeah, he doesn't... He, he It's weird in... Final Wars because he doesn't put up a good show because like you say he gets taken out by the humans the human sized mutants and then you know gets just tossed aside by Godzilla but at the same time it is cool that we get an updated version of the Ibra suit and we get a new version of Ibra so at least he's getting some love you know uh, there are monsters that uh, would have loved to appear in Final Wars I'm sure you know Megalon doesn't appear or Titanosaurus other than in stock footage so it, it's nice that at least he got um, a cameo, if nothing else, in the film, you know, which is always kind of made sense to me because that film leans uh, more towards the uh, the 60s and early 70s than it does the later 70s. We got, you know, Kamakuras and Kuamanga and Minya. So those make sense. But of course, Gigan's in there, too. So who knows? Uh, but yes, thank you very much for writing in, Adam. And I'm hoping you're continuing to enjoy the show. All right, um, now comes the time in the episode when people, when we have to answer the question, what are we covering next episode? Because we've come to the end of one, thus we must always be moving forward. And not forwards, but upwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling. So on the next episode, we're going to be taking a look at 
the comic Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift. This is a four-issue miniseries that was published in 2015 and 2016 from Legendary Comics. Uh, with the new Pacific Rim film coming out, I thought it was only appropriate to take a look at some Pacific Rim media as a, uh, you know, kind of, what do they call them, uh, shameless coattail riding like they do over on uh, Back to the Dens. We'll also be looking at the next issue of Marvel's Godzilla, which is issue number 17, starting a new storyline now that we've finished up the Western one. This is the one that Rich was referring to in his email that kind of takes us on through the end of the, of the book, so very much looking forward to that. We'll also have, of course, your emails and feedback, any news or uh, any updates to existing stuff that we've heard about, and anything that, you know, fits, uh, fits the motif here at uh, Earth Destruction Directive. So, uh, anyway, I'd like to say thank you very much for downloading the episode. I hope everyone enjoyed hearing about Ultraman and uh, Marvel's Godzilla. And do please come back next month for Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift. And until then, keep them stopping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive.
tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.